0: well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I'm going to annoy you again by reminding you of something that I've been, (laughs) I've repeated a few times, but I think it's going to be helpful again here in this chapter. If you recall, I've made the point that ultimately, when everything is said and done, you can take all of mankind and classify them into two groups elect and the non-elect. There are those who will come to true saving faith, and there are those who won't. And the day is coming, despite what anybody on Facebook says or YouTube, the day is coming when there will no longer be any questions or doubts about who belongs to what group. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And what is he going to do on his throne? Before him will be gathered all the nations, all people. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then down in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, apart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, that's what's coming down the road. We don't know when that day is coming. We don't need to know when it's coming. And we don't need to sit around and speculate as to when it's coming. What you simply need to know is that it is coming. And you need to be prepared. So that it does not take you by surprise. In fact, Jesus would make that very point earlier in that same sermon. He said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came, For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. Beloved, on that day it's going to be revealed to all who are the sheep and who are the goats. But as I've said prior to that day, however, things are a little bit more complicated not so obvious here on this earth and we can actually speak of three types of people in the here and now there are those who belong to god truly secondly there are those who do not belong to god and they make no pretense of being followers of god or of christ but then there's this third group who they're not different from the second group and that they end up in the same place ultimately But now they speak as though they do belong to God. They've deceived themselves. They speak as though they are the children of God, even though their beliefs and their practices don't line up with how a child of God should act and think. Now, what's interesting is that when we come to this chapter 9 here in John, we're going to read a story now in which there are some, at least two of these parties involved in interacting with each other. Namely, those who believe versus those who say they belong but don't actually belong. And we're going to learn a little bit more about these people, how they act, how they think when they're confronted with Christ and with the truth. And then we're going to see in the end those who claim that they belong but don't eventually get revealed to be those who are no different from the second group. And as we witness these interactions, as we as we. Look over these conversations. My prayer is that you will learn a little bit something about yourself and where you stand in relation to Christ and to the truth. So let's read the story. Again, this is John chapter 9. It says, As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? siloam which means sent so he went and washed and came back seeing the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying is this not the man who used to sit and beg and some said it is he others said no but he is like him he kept saying i am the man so they said to him then how were your eyes opened and he answered the man called jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me go to siloam and wash So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received the sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciple, disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Fathers, we come now to consider your word. May you open our eyes to its truth that we may embrace it. Remove our blindness. While this took place a very long time ago in a world much different than our own, the reality is nothing has changed with respect to who we are as fallen creatures and who you are. So help each and every one of us to examine our lives in light of this word, to examine where we stand in relation to you, and to respond accordingly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we look at the various groups and their interactions, let's consider what brought all this on. Right? What's the setup here? Well, we read of the setup in verses 1 through 7. Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple area, and they walked by a man who was blind from birth. Jesus noticed the man and so did his disciples. And then his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, Pastor Enro has already dealt with, uh, elaborated on that, those first four verses, four or five verses in his uh, sermon last Lord's Day. So I won't get into all the details again, but I'll simply summarize it by saying that we see that the disciples had this preconceived idea that all physical suffering was the direct result of some particular sin. They assumed that physical suffering of any kind is either the direct result of a particular sin or perhaps a lack of faith or is just being cursed of God. What they should have asked was is physical suffering always the direct result of a particular sin? That would have been the right qu- question. But instead they assumed falsely That the man's blindness had to be directly caused from some sin he committed, or maybe his parents, and so in their minds, it was simply a matter of whose sin it was, his or his parents. In logic, this is known as the fallacy of false dilemma. We commit this fallacy whenever we start with a premise that limits what our options are, when in reality there may be more options. There may be more reasons. In this case, there may have been some other reason why this man was blind from birth. But the disciples weren't even thinking that there could be other reasons. They just assumed there was no other explanation. Now, the law of non-contradiction points out to us that there are some scenarios in which there are always and only ever be two options. For example, if you were to ask somebody this question, is Jesus Christ the Messiah? There are only two options here. Either he is the Messiah or he's not. He can't be and not be the Messiah at the same time. There is no third option. And so by acknowledging the fallacy of false dilemma, we're not saying that everything is just up for grabs and that the law of non-contradiction doesn't exist. Some things are mutually exclusive, and there's no other way around it. But in some cases, there may be more than one or two options available. And in this case, with the blind man, the disciples failed to recognize that. They assumed there was no other option due to their own ignorance. I think there's a very important lesson we could all learn from that. We should always be constantly examining our thought process, our thinking, and ask ourselves if we are possibly restricting our options And thus making things difficult and creating problems with other people. When in reality, there may be other reasons to explain something. Well, Jesus addresses their false assumption in verse 3. He said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's your other option. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So in other words, this physical suffering was not the direct result of some particular sin of his or of his parents, as they assumed. Rather, God decreed this man's blindness so that God might be glorified through it. He decreed that this man be blind from birth for the purpose of bringing God glory. You might be thinking, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, this is exactly what we're going to see in this story. In verse 6, we're then told of the miracle. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing Now, if you read the commentaries, there's a lot of questions here as to why Jesus healed the man the way that he did. As many people have pointed out, Jesus could have simply just spoke it. He could have just simply said, see, and he would have saw. His blindness would have disappeared. Jesus certainly had that power to do that. So why did he do it this way? Why make mud with the dust of the ground and with his spit and then rub that in his eyes and then make him walk away and go to a pool to wash it off. What is the point in all of that? Well, we have to be careful here because Jesus didn't stop and give us a detailed explanation for why he did it this way. However, I will say this in verse 14. We learn that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. Does that ring any bells to you? Does that recall anything to mind that we've seen already in this gospel? You remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus not only did that on the Sabbath, but then he asked the man to take up his bed and walk, which supposedly was unlawful to do on the Sabbath, according to the Jews. And their skewed view of the law. And then what happened as a result of Jesus doing that miracle that day in the way that he did? Well, it triggered the religious leaders. It ticked them off. And then that's eventually what led to the confrontation between them and Jesus, which in turn allowed Jesus to explain his mission. I believe that's exactly what's going on here again in chapter 9. You see, the Pharisees had all sorts of rules that they had made up about the Sabbath. And one of their rules was that you were not allowed to knead dough on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to make dough with your hands. Could it be that Jesus intentionally makes the mud using the dust of the ground and his saliva, and he's doing this on the Sabbath to provoke and trigger the Pharisees? I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think that's the simplest, safest answer. Jesus is provoking his enemies to bring out the truth, just as he did with the invalid back in chapter 5. Calvin had this to say, and keep in mind, Calvin's not saying this because he's tying it with the mud making. He's just simply commenting about the fact this was done on the Sabbath, but here's what he says. He says, Christ purposely selected the Sabbath day, which must have given ground of offense to the Jews. We have already found in the case of the paralytic that this work was liable to slander. Why then does he not avoid the offense, which he could have easily have done, but because the defense malignantly undertaken by men would tend to magnify the power of God. The Sabbath day serves as a whetstone to sharpen them to inquire more eagerly into the whole matter. And yet, what advantage do they reap from a careful and earnest examination of the question but this, that the truth of the gospel shines more brightly? We are taught by this example that if we were to follow Christ, we must excite the wrath of the enemies of the gospel. And that they who endeavor to effect a compromise between the world and Christ, so as to condemn every kind of offense, are altogether mad since Christ, on the contrary, knowingly and deliberately provoked wicked men. We ought to attend, therefore, to the rule which he lays down, that they who are blind and leaders of the blind ought to be disregarded. I'm going to say something here, a little difficult, a lot of people don't like. But friends, I think sometimes we need to be very deliberate very precise, and very intentional at times to provoke the enemies of the gospel so as to lure them out to make clear who they are. And if you want a prime example of this, if you've been paying attention on Facebook, this whole fiasco with Gary DeMar and his denial of the resurrection of the body in the second coming. Got a lot of people that complained about that letter that we sent out there's 14 of us why would you make that public why would you demand that gary answer a few questions and then why would you create a website where you draw these hard lines on eschatology and ask people to sign for your support nothing good can come out of any of this it's all divisive That's what we've been told Well, I'll tell you one very good thing that's come out of all of it is we're finding out more and more that there are a number of men who we assumed were solid Bible teachers and in reality are not. And they're finally getting exposed. We are learning that there are some people who care more about honoring and worshiping their favorite celebrity teacher than they are honoring Christ and his word and upholding the fundamentals of the Christian faith. You see, provoking people in the way that our Messiah does here in this story has a way of exposing compromisers. And as Calvin pointed out, we are taught by this example, if we would follow Christ, But sometimes we need to excite the wrath of the enemies of the gospel in order to draw them out, To draw out who the compromisers are, so that we in turn will know who to disregard. As a matter of fact, even though we stopped reading at the end of chapter 9, understand this story doesn't end in chapter 9. Jesus continues his conversation with the Pharisees in chapter 10, and guess what he gets into in chapter 10? Exposing who the false teachers are, the the false shepherds, the hired men. The men who pretend to be shepherds, but then when the wolves come, they flee because they care nothing for the sheep. So Jesus here is intentionally provoking these men to draw them out and expose them for who they are. Well, this then leads to the responses then to Jesus's miracle. Following the miracle there are five conversations that take place and in these five conversations we learn a little something about the man who was healed and what occurs to those who come to a true saving faith but then we also learn about those who claim to belong to God but in reality don't and how they operate and how they respond to Christ. We see the first conversation takes place in verses 8 through 12 between the man and his neighbors. Again, it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, well, then how do your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Sil- Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know now this conversation is pretty straightforward and simple right this blind man obviously was well known among a lot of people but then notice the response of those who knew him once the miracle took place hey is not this the man we know is this the man who used to sit and beg the blind guy and some were like yeah that's him but then there are others who said no that's not him that's someone that looks like him but that's not him that can't be him And so here you simply see belief at work in some people while not in others. Understandably so, people were skeptical at first. I mean, who has ever heard of a man born blind being made to see? And among those who knew this man, there were some who obviously could not deny that a miracle had taken place. But even as obvious as it was, there were still some who knew this man and just refused to accept that the miracle had taken place. Well, no, that's not even him. That's somebody else. And it just really goes to show you how hard our hearts can be, doesn't it? Even when clear, obvious, undeniable evidence is staring us right in the face, we're like, no, that's, that's not it. That's not him. Looks like him, sounds like him. I know the guy, but that can't be him. How stubborn is that? <laughs> Our unbelief. One other point to make in this conversation is notice how the healed man described Jesus. When asked how his eyes were open, he says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Here he simply calls Jesus the man. Now, as this chapter progresses, we're going to see how this changes and how his his profession progressively gets better. Well, then there are three more conversations that take place, the next three all involving the Pharisees. They have two with the man and then one with the man's parents. In verses 13 through 17, we see the conversation between the Pharisees and the man. It says they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received the sight. And he said to him, he put mud on my eyes and washed and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. So notice here that there's some division among the religious leaders. Some said there's no way this man is from God. He's he's not keeping the Sabbath. He's breaking the law, which, of course, was all false. Jesus kept the Sabbath as it was intended. But then notice there are some who objected. But how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And so we have division among the religious leaders. And the second thing to notice here is how the man now describes Jesus in this conversation. He says he is a prophet. So first it was he's the man. Now it's he's the prophet. He is a prophet. Again, just keep that in mind. Well, then we move to the next conversation that takes place in verses 18 through 23. And now it's between the Pharisees and the man's parents. It says the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, for he will speak for himself. Notice the way the man's parents interact with the religious leaders. Now this, at first, seems harmless, doesn't it? This seems innocent. They're asked how their son now sees, and they're like, we don't know. We don't know who did this. Why don't you ask him? (laughs) That seems pretty straightforward, honest, innocent, right? But then notice that the scripture tells us why they answered this way. It says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So what can we learn from this conversation? Well, we learned that sometimes people may try to play a middle ground, but they don't really want to take a stand on something. They may even appear to be doing so out of a concern of being fair, or being balanced, or innocent, or whatever it may be. But in reality, they won't take a stand because they're afraid of other people. They fear what others may say, or what others may think about them. They're afraid of what others may do to them if they were to take a stand for the truth. Have you ever found yourself in that position? I remember when I was 17 years old, having not grown up in church. I go to church because this cute girl asked me to go. I respond to the gospel. I want to get baptized. My whole life has changed. And I remember thinking, man, I go back because I went to public school, which is a nightmare. I remember thinking, how are people going to react? How are they going to be? Because I'm not going to be the same person I was just a week ago. Things are changing. I may lose some friends. Again, have you ever found yourself in that position? You know what the truth is. It's clear. It's obvious. But when called upon, you don't want to stand for what's right, for what's true, because you're afraid of what people are going to think about you. Your friends, your family, your co workers, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Beloved, this is a very real danger that still goes on to this day. I want to remind you of something Jesus said concerning this very thing. It says in Mark 8, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What would it profit a man to be a man pleaser? To please his friends and his family, everybody around him, and deny the truth. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And we've already heard what he's coming to do. Separate people. Well, then fourth... Next, we see the Pharisees turn back to the man for our fourth conversation. And we read of this in verses 24 through 34. It says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already, and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to become his disciples and they reviled him saying you are his disciple but we are disciples of moses we know that god has spoken to moses but as for this man we do not know where he comes from and the man answered why this is an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of god and does his will god listens to him Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not sent from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And then they cast him out. Notice the beggar's courage in contrast to his parents. The religious leaders came and said, Hey, glorify God with us. Have the same opinion of jesus that we have affirm us in calling jesus a sinner and what was his response well i don't know if he's a sinner but i do know this though i was blind now i see he couldn't deny what had happened to him and who had done it who should take credit for it the pharisees didn't like that answer they didn't like that this man would not bow down their knee his knee to them and so they asked again well How did you open your eyes? And then I love this. The beggar just starts to scorn him. Remember, I was talking about exciting the wrath of God from his enemies. Beggar's starting to do this now. The Pharisees scorn him. He said, "I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also?" And then they revile him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, quick side note here. I told Enro, there's a whole sermon right here in this verse. So I was sharing with him on last Lord's Day. Notice how it is the Pharisees who try to pit Moses against Christ. And yet, what do we hear often from those who are anti-law? antinomians and others who tell us that, oh, it's all about grace and the law is irrelevant. The Old Testament is irrelevant. doesn't apply to us anymore. What do they call those of us who emphasize the importance and continued relevancy of the Old Testament? They call us Pharisees. And yet it was the Pharisees who were pitting Jesus against Moses The modern-day Pharisees are not those who recognize the validity of the moral law today. The modern-day Pharisees are those who tell us that none of the Old Testament matters anymore. They are the ones, like the Pharisees of old, who are trying to pit the old against the new. The only difference is, is whose side they take. That's it. The Pharisees of old sided with Moses against Jesus the Pharisees of today will side with Jesus against Moses. When the reality is, is that they're both dead wrong. Now, that is not to say that there are no differences between the old administration and the new. Obviously, there are differences. But as our confession rightly points out, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Friends, our Old Testament, the Old Testament, we call the Old, I kind of don't like that phrase, is not at war with the new. Anybody who claims that it is, is a Pharisee. It's just, they've chosen different sides. Instead of pitting Moses against Jesus, they're pitting Jesus against Moses. It's the same error. So, end of side note. But again, <clears throat> we notice the, the beggar's courage and we notice that he is seeing things more and more clearly. Meanwhile, the blindness of the Pharisees is getting worse. Now to the point that they excommunicate the man from the synagogue. And there is much we can learn here in these three conversations with the Pharisees and of those who think they belong to God but in reality don't. First thing we can learn from this is that no matter how much evidence they are given, unless the Holy Spirit quickens a person, they will not believe. Despite all your religious activities. Think about it. These people heard from the neighbors. They called the man. Then they went to the man's parents. Then they went back to the man again. And they're all testifying concerning the same thing. Everyone's testimony confirms that an incredible miracle had been performed. That the man that stood before them is now seen, even though he's been born blind since day since he's been blind since day he was born. And yet, despite all this evidence and testimony, they still would not believe it. Another thing we can learn from these folks, Pharisees. Is that they took comfort in their legalism and in their false religion. Again, I want to be clear here. Understand something. Desiring to uphold the moral law of God as the fruit of someone who has been quickened by the Spirit of God is not legalism. That's the work of true saving faith. Legalism is when we make up our own rules in attempt to justify ourselves as the evidence of a true miracle was presented to them they felt threatened and they retreated to their man-made rules and to the comfort of their self-righteousness jesus was a sinner they said and no sinner could possibly do works like these and why did they say that jesus was a sinner because they claimed that he had broke the sabbath when he made the mud with his saliva again according to their man-made rules not the laws of the bible but according to their rules a person was not allowed to knead bread on sabbath and this is essentially what jesus did he made the mud in a way similar to the way people knead bread when they mix the earth when he mixed the earth with his spit and worked them together Jesus was a Sabbath-breaker, according to them, according to their reasoning. Because they were blinded by their man-made rules, they end up ignoring a true, genuine miracle. This happened right in front of their face. It's blinded them. They ignore an act of mercy. They choose to to dismiss Jesus in favor of their man-made rules and regulations. And in reality, he never broke the Sabbath. Again, friends, we have to be very careful here. Learn the lesson. So many people in their zeal to appear holy and righteous only end up fighting against the Lord. And they're missing out on what the Lord is doing because in actuality they have substituted God in his word, for their own man-made rules and regulations. And then fifth and last, we see the conversation between Jesus and the beggar, in verses 35 through 38. And when Jesus had heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now notice here who initiates this conversation. Once Jesus had heard that the man had been cast out of the synagogue, it was Jesus who went and sought him and found him. That's important because we're going to see Jesus talk about this again in the next chapter, about him being the shepherd and laying his life down for the sheep and going after the sheep. Here you're seeing Jesus actually doing this in real time. And upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And he said, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And then notice what he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Do you see the progression talked about earlier remember first he said he's just a man or he said he's a man the man then it was he is a prophet and then when the religious leaders got in his face he defended jesus at any cost and then now finally he acknowledges jesus as lord and he falls down and he worships jesus and so in all of this you see that jesus is doing the work of god that Jesus is the glory of God, that it is Jesus who is to be worshipped, and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus would go on to say, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. We see here that Jesus' coming has two a twofold effect upon men. I like how the Reformation Heritage Study Bible summarizes this. As the light of the world... Jesus enables those who are spiritually blind to see his glory by faith in the gospel. On the other hand, those who think they have spiritual sight because they are religious are doubly blind, (coughs) hampered by a Christless religion and (coughs) self-righteousness. When people are ignorant of God's truth, but are open to being corrected, their sinful state is less of a deterrent. Such people have hope that God may save them, but those adamant in their proud opinion that they are right are hardened in their unbelief. And then lastly, we see that Christ's word confronts us, that there is no neutrality. We can be like the man who was healed and boldly follow the truth To worship at the feet of Jesus and confess him before men. Or we can be like his parents, who in the fear of man bowed under the intimidation of this world. Or we can be like the Pharisees who were so blind, they rejected the plain truth to cling to their own ways. Only one of these individuals or groups could see, and the others were blind to the light of Christ's glory. And so I ask you, where do you fit in this story? Who do you most resemble among these groups? May you repent and flee to Christ. Let's pray.